Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. Hello and welcome to Hospitals in Focus. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the current and past state of health policymaking on Capitol Hill with one of the central players of the last two decades. We will discuss a few of the major health policy accomplishments of recent years, as well as take a look at what the Republican majority in the House and its counterpart, Democratic counterpart in the Senate, are considering this year. To walk through both history and prospects, we have one of the most qualified practitioners of health policy in the nation, Wendell Primus. Wendell just wrapped up an unprecedented and impactful career on Capitol Hill, serving for 18 years as senior policy advisor on budget and health issues to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, playing a keystone role in the passage of the Affordable Care Act, ACA, and just about every other important piece of health care legislation for the past 20 years. Before that, among other influential positions, he served in key roles on the staff of the House Ways and Means Committee and uh, in the Clinton administration as the HHS Deputy Assistant Secretary for Human Services Policy. Thanks so much for joining me today, Wendell. Very glad to be with you, Chip. Wendell, uh, let's get started. Let's look back before we look forward. The Affordable Care Act, ACA, became a teenager this year, turning 13. But the policies it contains continue to be both transformational and, unfortunately, controversial. What do you see as the key effects of the law, and how does that compare to what you thought would happen when the bill was enacted? Chip, I think it's less uh, controversial than it was many years ago. I mean, the Republicans are no longer talking about repeal or repeal and replace. And I think the, the law has been implemented about according to plan. I mean, we have a lot more insured individuals. The, the 2021 census report showed that we had reached or tied our lowest uninsured uh, level ever. And as more and more states, um, the Medicaid expansion, and as um, we now are seeing record levels in terms of marketplace enrollment, I think that uninsured rate is, uh, is going to go down further and further. And I think the most interesting thing is that in the states that have expanded Medicaid recently, it was because voters in those states overturned their state legislators and voted to give low-income people health insurance. I think that's very significant and very interesting. Yes, it is, it is encouraging because, from my view, ACA could be universal coverage if every, at least for Americans, if every piece of it uh, was implemented. And hopefully those other states that are left out, which become fewer every year, uh, who eventually will come on board. You're absolutely right, uh, Chip. I mean, what the ACA has accomplished is that every citizen, setting aside the issue of the undocumented for a moment, everybody now has access to affordable health care as a result of the ACA. And it's really made a difference in a lot of lives. Something else that you've worked on probably will make a difference in many lives, and that's the focus uh, you have placed in recent times on reforming payment for drugs under the Medicare program. As uh, one of the primary staff uh, members on the Hill 
responsible for drafting H.R. Uh, 3 and then the ultimate drug payment changes that were enacted. How would you characterize the implications of these changes in the Medicare statute? And to sort of add another wrinkle, how does that set the table for the current discussions around refining the role of pharmacy benefit managers? I think the drug pricing legislation that was enacted as part of the Inflation Reduction Act was very significant, but it's a gift that can keep on giving. The CBO score in the Inflation Reduction Act was about $200 billion. When the House passed H.R. 3, the drug pricing savings was about $500 billion. So there is still a long ways to go, and the president has doubled down on that in his um, in his budget legislation that he sent up earlier this year, he's increased the number of drugs that would be negotiated, but he didn't apply the, the negotiated rate to the commercial sector. I think that's one very important thing that still needs to be added. So we still have a ways to go, but it's a very significant first step. And I see many more steps in the future. In terms of refining the role of uh, PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers, I think that is much less significant relative to the further changes that could be made to drug pricing. So let's look at some other issues that are under examination now. Uh, A major one that the Energy and Commerce Committee and other parts of the House will probably focus on is price transparency. I was speaking to Energy and Commerce Chair Kathy Morris Rogers recently and she views this as transformative for Medicare and healthcare in general. Where are you on price transparency? And do you see it as the kind of lever for change uh, that some would argue it is? I do not see that as a major transformation for Medicare. I mean, as you know better than anybody, Chip, prices are set by Medicare. I mean, hospitals get a certain price, uh, and so do uh, doctors. So, I don't see it at all significant for the Medicare uh, program. I think it's a good thing. I don't, I'm not arguing against price transparency. And I think it may be more important in the private sector for commercial insurance, but prices are hard to establish. I mean, if you do a given procedure on someone that is healthy versus say another, the same procedure on someone that's a hundred pounds overweight and has a lot of comorbidities, uh, the time to recuperate and the expense involved may be substantially different. So I think price transparency is complicated and it has a role to play, but I, I do not see it as a major transformation, particularly in the Medicare program. Many of the policies established by the ACA remain in discussion even today, and some Republicans would even like to see some of them changed, like the one regarding the ban on physician ownership and referral to hospitals. You will remember this ban was adopted because of research that indicated physician-owned, especially hospitals particularly, uh, had overutilization. Do you see this discussion, you know, relevant to today? And is there any reason for us to uh, shift policy here from your view? No, I do not believe there's any reason to shift policy. I mean, when we enacted that as part of the ACA, it was because the Congressional Budget Office scored it as significant savings because, as you said, there was overutilization. I do not think that score from CBO has changed. I know uh, many Republican members, particularly from Texas, 
are introducing uh, legislation that would overturn that ban. But I do not see anything that would warrant a change. And I, I remain uh, believe that ban should uh, uh, continue. You know, there's a lot of discussion today around hospital consolidation and frankly, a little bit less focus on consolidation with insurers. And interestingly, on the insurer's side, that consolidation is both horizontal and vertical with insurers buying other insurers, but also buying up doctor practices and other uh, parts of the delivery system. I saw one estimate uh, that United Healthcare and its affiliates uh, could soon control as much as 10% of all healthcare expenditures uh, in the United States, you know, within the next uh, five to seven years. That's sort of a mind-blowing notion. Uh, how do you see this affecting uh, healthcare in the United States? And, and where are you on, on this sort of vertical uh, shift with so much of the levers of healthcare going to the uh, insurers? Well, you're correct. It is kind of a mind-blowing um, set of issues here where we have United Healthcare buying up a lot of doctors' practices and actually employing doctors. I think that has implications for the Medicare Advantage market and upcoding, um, et cetera. And I do not think this uh, changes for the good. So, I mean, I think this will eventually start to affect prices in a negative direction, I mean, in an upward uh, direction. But it's not clear to me what we do about it. You bring up Medicare Advantage, and there is a quite, quite a bit of uh, scrutiny now in Congress and in, at CMS. Uh, just recently, it was announced that uh, enrollment for MA will you know, pass the 50% margin in terms of the number of Medicare beneficiaries, and there doesn't seem to be anything stopping that. Uh, many seniors obviously love their MA. Uh, they get extra benefits. But there is a downside when it comes to coding abuses and uh, overuse of prior authorization, which can lead to care being delayed or denied. How do you view the ex explosive growth and the implications of it, uh, of MA, and uh, should oversight be increased or what should be done in terms of this really, this transformative change in Medicare? Well, this is a very important set of um issue here. And, and we're going to see that continue because, as you say, uh, Medicare beneficiaries get a benefit from enrolling in MA plans. Many employers right now see it as an advantage because they can lower their employer cost for Medigap-type uh, insurance. So I think it needs a lot more than just oversight. I think we need some fundamental rethinking here of what the reimbursement levels for MA should be. And this will not be easy. I mean, there are a lot of political forces that will keep MA high. And, you know, last year we were working with Representative Dalbeni's bill, which was trying to put a clamp or restrict uh, prior authorizations. And, you know, we learned from CBO that MA plans, you achieved about a 10% utilization difference relative to fee-for-service. Plus, I think we're going to see a recent, uh, some upcoming MedPAC reports that are going to say MA plans, because of upcoding and other things, may be getting an 11% increase in, in payments relative to fee-for-service. So I think there's some fundamental changes that we need to make in reimbursement in a downward direction. And this is going to continue 
to be an issue. And, and also, you know, the fact that we crossed the halfway point means that in some areas of the country, we're seeing 75, 80% penetration. And that then raises issues of whether what's left in fee-for-service can really serve as a benchmark for what the MA plan reimbursement level should be. So I see this uh, as a major issue, and uh, I think uh, Congress has to do not only oversight, but fundamentally look at whether MA plans are being overpaid. When I first joined uh, the Ways and Means Committee many years ago, HMOs at that time were getting 95% of what fee-for-service payments were. Uh, now it's substantial. It could be as much as 120%, taking into account both the utilization implications as well as uh, how much they're being paid relative to fee-for-service. This sort of leads, I think, to a conversation about what could be viewed as a conundrum. On the one hand, it's been pushed off a number of years, but issues with the funding of the Part A trust fund, the hospital uh, trust fund in Medicare, obviously the outpatient side and the physician side of Medicare, in a sense, is funded by a revolving fund, but that is uh, still affects federal spending. But at the same time, Medicare payments to healthcare providers, hospitals, and clinicians only equals about 84 cents on the dollar of costs. And with that being the case, how should we look at the future of Medicare's effect on the whole healthcare system? I mean, right now in the House Energy and Commerce Committee and in Ways and Means, ultimately in the Ways and Means Committee, uh, they're talking about reducing outpatient hospital department uh, payment by imposing uh, site-neutral payment policies between providers. Do you think Congress needs to focus on the effects of this Medicare underpayment? But how do you sort of reconcile that uh, with uh, other issues around the long-term funding of Medicare, as well as uh, various aspects of Medicare where policymakers are questioning whether or not they're paying in the correct manner? That's a very important set of questions you've asked there, uh, Chip. I would quibble a little bit of whether you're actually getting 84 cents for every dollar of cost from Medicare. I, I think I'm not just sure of that number, but it's very clear that commercial insurance pays hospitals a lot more. And hospitals do quite well when they're in suburbs and they have a very good mix of commercial insurers and less of Medicaid and Medicare. So I think this is going to be a continuing issue. And if anything, going back to the ACA, where we've got to worry about the cost of our overall health system, it's how much commercial insurance is paying relative to Medicare. But I'm not quite willing to accept the fact that Medicare is underpaying to the extent you believe it is. I think site-neutral payments in theory is a good thing, but we, we, the Congress, the Congress legislated on that several years ago. And I think Congress has to proceed slowly in terms of whether it makes more changes to Medicare reimbursement levels. I think the real issue is on the commercial side. You know, there is a natural experiment that's going on along those lines. And it's particularly if we look at rural hospitals that are proportionately, in terms of their payer mix, uh, proportionately higher, if not almost 100% in many cases, Medicaid and Medicare payment. And we clearly know from, from that that 
that payments are insufficient to keep the hospitals going. I think the 84 cents, I think, you know, can be seen in the, in the MedPAC numbers, but then MedPAC quibbles about what's appropriate costs. So I, we'll, we'll, we'll save that debate for another day. Now let's look at a, another policy that's being proposed. Uh, the Republicans in their uh, debt ceiling measure and in sort of their agenda uh, would like Medicaid to be considered, at least for those who are able, more of a, a welfare program and uh, would like to see the imposition of work requirements or other kind of requirements that Medicaid recipients be, that they physically can, would be engaged. What's your view on that? And what's your view on, you know, their justification for that, that somehow as a public program, work should be attached to it? I have a very dim view of work requirements, particularly on in health programs. I mean, I think they set up further barriers from people actually getting health insurance. I think having access to health insurance and having access to health care is just very important for keeping people healthy and therefore keeping people fit uh, for the labor market. So I think the, this hullabaloo over work requirements is way overrated. I, I would like to see that aspect of the Republican plan defeated. And we really should work on making sure that everybody has access to health insurance and therefore access to health care. In your last question, you mentioned about rural hospitals. I mean, rural hospitals in states that haven't expanded Medicaid are closing their doors much faster than hospitals in states where Medicaid has expanded. So I think the emphasis should still be beyond making sure every American has access to health insurance and, and work requirements stand in the way of that. Another major issue facing healthcare is the growing workforce shortage, especially among uh, nurses. I, I know this is something you're looking into as you begin your new role uh, at the Brookings Institution. Uh, can you talk about that a bit? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say it's maybe the number one issue in healthcare right now. And it's a growing workforce across the board from physicians to nurses and even lower paid workers in nursing homes and uh, home and community uh, based services. I think a partial answer to that is immigration. I think when the baby boom generation reaches 85, 90, and they reach their peak in terms of demand for skilled nursing services and home and community-based services, we are going to see this workforce problem be even more intensified. And while it's not a panacea, I think part of that problem could be uh, erased if we would increase legal immigration levels in this country. I think we've got to do much more there and, and, you know, we've also got to look at our medical schools, which is primarily a state decision about, and we, we, we need to focus on all of the issues here in workforce, because I view that as probably the number one problem facing our healthcare system today. You know, the issue that we'll be defining for the last few years is COVID-19, the pandemic, and the nation's emerging from it. As we speak, the public health emergency is no longer in place, but all the issues related to the experience we just had in terms of public health 
remain before us. What do you see as the primary public health challenges uh, in terms of preparation for a future pandemic and keeping the public healthy generally? Uh, And what do you think should be done? Well, I think we need to make more investments in our public health system. Right now, it's very much state-centered, and I think I'm not saying that's bad, but I think we need more steady investment. And the other thing that's got to happen is we got to have better coordination between CMS and um, the Center on Disease Control, CDC. I think uh, we need rapid information from hospitals and other providers, and that's where I think a key role would be to better coordinate what goes on at CMS and their reporting requirements and seeing that that data that CDC needs is, uh, gets there. I mean, creating another information system just is, does not solve a problem. CDC does need better information, and I think we need to work on that. But I, I see real issues there of better coordination, again, between CMS and CDC. Wendell, this has been such a helpful conversation, but before we end, I understand that you're working on a book. Uh, Can you give us a sneak peek into the themes that you're going to be attacking in that effort? Yes, I will soon be appointed here at the Brookings Institute, and we're going to work first on a series of six papers. The first one is going to be how do we resolve and strengthen the solvency of our social security system And uh, I'm working on that paper. We're going to do another paper on reducing elderly poverty, which is now twice that of child poverty. People may not understand that fully, but using kind of a a more comprehensive measure of poverty that takes into account SNAP benefits and and housing vouchers and and tax benefits, child poverty is, again, about half that of elderly poverty. We have Uh, as you know, solvency issues in the hospital insurance fund. And the other thing that I, and immigration, again, we will have a paper on immigration because, again, we see that as a partial solution to the workforce problem. But in addition, I think there's going to be a real um, crunch on the Medicaid program because the Medicaid program now is our our long-term care payer of last resort, but you have to spend down into it And I think when, again, the baby boom generation reaches its peak in terms of demand for long-term care services, it's going to put a real squeeze on state budgets with all the implications that that has. So we're going to do a series of six papers that will redefine and bring solvency to Social Security, Medicare, and also tackle the issue of long-term care. Well, I certainly look forward to uh, reading your, your thinking on these critical matters of the day. And I just want to thank you so much for uh, all your service, as well as being with us today, Wendell. Oh, it's my pleasure, Chip. And uh, I wish you well. And the hospitals just play a very critical role in uh, providing care to Americans that uh, are in need of care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow Chip at Chip Con. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.
Let's topic up.